0: Hello everyone um, and um, hello Jeff. Welcome to our first session at Guru Live 2019. I'm Tanya sagachian uh, I'm a producer and in this session I'm going to be talking to the multi BAFTA winning writer Jeff Pope on developing your craft and the stories you want to tell. And if I may, I might just ask the audience how many of you here are writers? Um, producers? and just viewers. (laughs) So um, I'm partly asking that because Jeff has had a very eclectic career in the sense that he is master of both of those um, disciplines, and most people struggle to do one, let alone manage to do two in the way that you've done. Um, and what I thought I'd try and do today is take a chronological look at how you got to where you are today and, and to get the audience to feel like they're part of this conversation. So I'm going to obviously lead the uh, conversation, we've got about an hour and a bit, but if you have a burning desire to ask something in the course of the conversation rather than wait to the end, stick your hand up in the air, uh, we have a roving mic and, and you can join in. If I may, Jeff, can I start asking you if you thought you would end up as a writer or a producer and how you got into this medium of storytelling?
1: OK, so my... Good afternoon, everyone. My start was as uh, a journalist. So I, I worked on a local newspaper and um, got applied for and got a job working at London Weekend Television in about 1983, this one, it seems like, yesterday. And that was working in current affairs um and well i, I if it, it, as as my career in television early career in television progressed I, I inched towards drama so initially i was doing working on a program that's a bit like the one show now um it's called the six o'clock show you all too young to remember it I, I suspect um well no you actually are i'm not sadly and um i then I then worked on a crime programme and I, I, I devised the format and I had like a 15-minute um, mm. section in it where it was a reconstruction of a crime and how it was solved. So I'm kind of, you know, one foot towards it uh, and out of that, it was successful and out of that came a, 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 a network show which was half an hour and which was about how it was a crime show. and. and and so I'm, and then, then I, it then didn't seem such a big step to move into full drama. And then I wrote, um, co-wrote the first drama I did. It was called Fool's Gold. And I wrote it, and it, and it starred Sean Bean. And that set me off. And um, I, I got into writing because I... I don't know what the... Out there, what, what, how the writers feel, but I... I suppose it came easy to me to um, to to not saying writing easy, but the process of um, a scene and thinking of of a place and people and what's happening and what they're saying to each other. That process, I found, that, you know, that yes, I I I could under, I understood how it worked intuitively. And when it, when it came to the, um, this, the, the Fool's Gold, it was the producer in me, I was, I was about 28 by then, something like that, 29, and the producer in me wanted to um, go for writers of the day mm. who, who, to, to write it for me. But, you know, uh, good writers are kind of booked up two years in advance. Um, and so I didn't want to wait two years, so I kind of did it because because of that, because I thought I could, and I it was easier because I was doing it from inside a production company, uh, ITV London Weekend Television as, as it was, and that was that was my first step into into drama, uh, a sense that I could do it and an opportunity, um, so I was I'm aware that I was lucky and and in a privileged position in in the sense that that I I had the opportunity which is that's the thing that's difficult but then the other flip side of that is it's it's half of it's having an opportunity and the other half is taking the opportunity.
0: I was about to say seizing it is um, you know I, I was in a similar situation I was a producer I'm looking for writers i spent my life looking for writers I couldn't do that. I know, I couldn't suddenly take, take the page, work out what they say and, and write. Mm-hmm. So that confidence, and I, and I don't know whether it's confidence or whether it was discipline, but that intuitive sense that you could do it. Yeah. Did that come from having been a journalist and knowing you had a deadline and having to find a story and somehow having to put the story down, or is it because it's just second nature to you?
1: The staples of my writing career, our research, um, building the world, um, trying to create the universe that I'm going to draw the story from, and then finding a line through that material. So I was doing that when I wrote for the Ealing Gazette. I was doing that when I was working on the Six O'Clock Show. And I've been doing that ever since, in a way. It's, that's the process for me.
0: And the research process, how how much of that is speculative? I mean, would you say your ratio of idea to one page outline is 10 to 1, 100 to 1, 2 to 1, 1 to 1? Uh, 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 And how do you know when you're on to a good idea?
1: I think what I'm looking for. No, it's not, I I don't madly overdevelop. You know, I'll have a lot of stuff that passes through my mind, but... If I take any one of those, those dramas, um, it's not, there might, a story right now might seem, you know, I was thinking, I was thinking a couple of months back about Theresa May and thinking, you know, um, going through that whole process, um, and then she, she, you know, stymied, outmaneuvered, um, you know, the, the ridiculous decision to call an election and <laughs> serves her right, et etc. et cetera. But I was thinking, was there a kind of story in there about, the word, nearest word I can think of is bullying. You know, was she, was there a bit of bu- a woman in a man's world, was she a bit bullied? And, and then, then now I'm thinking, Burkov Ber- is an interesting story. So, um, th- so why I'm saying that, just a, 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 a little insight, I'm thinking, the story that you pick has got to still be relevant two years later. Mm. Because that's how long it will take, you know, to to get to get the thing, commit to get a script commission, to write a script, get you know, get the the green light, uh, cast, shoot it, and transmit it. It's, is it still that relevant? Are you still really, really into the idea? Can you imagine yourself really being into the idea six months down the line? So no, I I think if I if I go back to that first ever thing, Fool's Gold. So it was about a um, what was then and probably still is the biggest ever robbery um, in British history, and um, it, so it was a, a gang who hit a um, bullion depot near Heathrow or at, at Heathrow, sorry, and so I knew there's okay, there's a lot of there's a lot of we all can imagine the heist genre, and there's there's the kind of planning and then there's the um, Tension and then there's the kind of pulling it off and all that. So I knew that was almost kind of a given. I thought, yeah, yeah, that, okay, yeah, I can see all that. But the thing that made me realize that there was something beyond that, something that rose above the sequence of events, because any script can't just be this happened, this happened, this happened. You're, you're trying to tell something bigger which sits above all of it. And the thing that I've, the single fact that I found out about that—I read a lot of books about it—was um, that there was a, one of the gang had was very arrogant and had, had got arrested. They, the others, had all ru- re- legged it and tried to hide out in Spain. And he said, "No, no, no, no! They won't come after me." Of course, he was caught, and he ended up getting something like 26 years. And and he then at that at the point of his um, conviction and his sentencing said, I want to give my share back. Yeah. Um, and I, th- I thought, wow, that, that's interesting. He wanted to trade his share of the bullion that he'd stolen for a, for a lesser sentence. Even more interesting, the ones that were on the outside said no. So I thought, okay, there really is something about how those people came together and the relationships and the alignments that was really that, that rose above just... They did a robbery. They got away with it. They got caught. Mm
0: -hmm. And um, and for those who don't know, what happened in the end? Did he get the shorter sentence?
1: (laughs) No, no, he he didn't. They wouldn't. No, they they the the rest of the gang said, "Oh, we'll we'll pay. We'll give some money on your behalf," but the police said no deal. And so he served, you know, a large the most part of his sentence.
0: And, um, and that was one example of a heist. Uh, earlier this year, we, we saw another example of a more recent heist that, um, that you tackled, the Hatton Garden. Um, again, with that story, uh, when was the right moment for it? Was it one of those ones where you thought, I have to be the first out the gate, I have to do it now? Um, I know it took a while to get going, but h- how did you address the kind of issues about that story in the headlines and how to make that feel? It, it
1: was interesting. I was actually, I think, the fourth out of the gate on that. There, was a, there, was, there were a couple of fairly low-budget movies, then working title of the movie. And, um, and interestingly, I co-wrote that with the guy that I co-wrote the first thing, I, the other thing I've just been talking about because I don't want to say that all I've ever done is robberies. (laughs) No, we'll prove
0: there's other stuff in there.
1: (laughs) I don't think there's been another one in between those two, about 20 30 years apart. Um, And it it was the guy, his name's Terry Windsor, the guy that I I wrote the first, that Fool's Gold piece with. He he talked to me about it and he said, are you looking at this, this is interesting. And And I was and I wasn't, and then I started to read a few books, and then... In the end, I, I thought, OK, the, 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 there is something interesting about... Well, there was a few things that interested me. One was if you... And it was broadcast on consecutive nights, and I thought that was a really exciting transmission pattern because the robbery, certainly the, the, the actual take, uh, ransacking of the safe deposit um, place, almost was in real time. It <coughs> happened over three days, four days, a bank holiday weekend. And so you're almost in sync with the transmission pattern. So like, they go in on day one, a big drill breaks. They then go home. They argue about going back again. One says, I'm not going. The other one says, I am going to go. And he was the kind of, in, you know, um, the other one was the kind of boss. And he was the kind of you know, second in command. And second in command becomes, and they go back the second night. So that was all great. But I thought that, um, the, the story that, that, that there were a couple of things. So I thought it, it was interesting. That, that that was fascinating, but it was the relationship between those two that was the way in, um, because that that was their undoing. The fact that they, the fact that they'd been together for years, and then the the boss says we're not going back. and The other one defies him and goes back. Then the boss says, well, hang on, you went back. I want to share. That was the sort of. But I I thought it was really important that. Um, it wasn't lovable... Most of the other pieces have been lovable rogues. And I thought, no, that won't, that won't wash I mean, you know, it might work in the cinema. Um, you know, with, with, with... I'm sure that, you know, I didn't watch them o- o- on purpose because I didn't want to be influenced by how other people had approached the story. But I thought that... You c- I don't think a mass audience there buys lovable rogues or anti-heroes. I I think they need a moral centre. So I thought it was very important that we showed that people's lives had been devastated, they'd been lost, there'd been huge losses, Mm -hmm. people lost their homes, and that you saw the other side of it as well. And also we didn't um, sugarcoat them. They were violent men, or had been in the past, and they... They, they, they had, they, there were some aspects of their character that were appealing, but they were also aspects... They were, they were nasty as well. So I, I think it was telling it like it was, not trying to put a spin on it. Um,
0: well... Oh, there's a question there. The questions about the truth and how, yeah. how much, when you take on a true story, the truth helps or hinders
1: the telling of the narrative. See, I'm all about the actual story. So my process will be... You know, I'll, I'll be aware of facets of the story. And, you know, I always think of the top of the iceberg poking above the water, but you've got all that mass underneath and it's, it's what's there. My process is to go deeper and deeper into the DNA of the story. So, a lot of research, a lot of um, digging. Uh, If it's a crime, uh, if it's a crime story, then that that is to do with you know, there there are interviews you can see, you know, taped interviews. There are court records, but also it's speaking to as many different, you know, branching out from your main characters. It's 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 out and out and out and trying to create the universe. I, my process is, is by going deeper and deeper into the story. That's where you avoid the cliché, which has been the big thing that if I look back on when I started, that's, it's a phobia about things being familiar and, and clichéd. And I think if you actually... So the direct answer to your question is the truth is absolutely your friend. Because the deeper and deeper you go really into what happens, by definition, you're, you're going to avoid cliché. Because we all do things differently. You know, we don't all conform to the same thing. I'll give you a couple of examples. When, say, in Little, Little Boy Blue, and then in, in, in the thing that I've just done... Uh, confession. Confession. Um, a couple of things. It was, there's, there's, there are... Well, I'll go to the confession one. There's a scene when the eldest... The, the first girl, is the murder victim, is, they, they found her, she's dead, and... The family has to decide who's going to see her at the morgue. And the boyfriend says, I want to go. And the mum and the biological father, are, are, I don't want to go. But he's absolutely determined, I want to go, I want to go. And so he did, and he did identify her. And I said, why were you so insistent on going? And he said, because right up until the moment when they pulled the sheep back and I looked at her, I was hoping they'd made a mistake. Mm-hmm. and I. I uh, you know, thank you for... this. name's Kevin Reap. And I just, th- you know, thank you for that, Kevin. I hadn't... You know, thank God I haven't had to go through that. And I... He just, you know... And then, you know, I discussed it with people and they said, no, it is, that is... A lot of people do think that. You know, they, they're thinking maybe, maybe they think it's her, but it's not, and, and it is. So, I, you know, it, it's, it's going back to your question, which is about... Um, that these, these moments and, and these lines and, and this th- the way of thinking about stuff comes from going deeper and deeper into it, not, as it were, kind of pulling back and thinking, right, I'm going to knock the rough edges off this and make it slicker. But what's
0: interesting to me about that, and if we just flip back to the Mrs Biggs situation, you hmm. start off thinking, should I do the great train robbery that's that's the idea that you think you're exploring. You read lots of books about the great great train robbery, and you end up finding a character maybe on the side whose personal human story on the side is the way in, the angle to tell the story um, And I think that's the genius of mrs biggs actually it's uh, It's really human and very moving. Um, but as a commissioner or as a producer, or if somebody's come to you with... I uh, want you to do a great train robbery story, and you come back and say, I'm telling a moving story of how, um, how the wife of, of one of the uh, key members of the robbery deals with something that happened after the event. Is that the boldness of the writer or the writer making the right choice to tell the best story?
1: The, pro- the, the process was not uh, to do... To do the great train robbery. I had, I, 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 I must have read about it, but it hadn't really stuck. The inspiration was I saw Charmian uh, in, an, in a documentary for ABC, the Australian network, and I happened to catch it one night. And she was talking about that moment when she lost her son and she had to um, grieve by herself. And I remembered my. So my I think it was 63, 63 and then they found him again i remember i 'm trying i 'm slightly hazy, but as a fairly eight nine year old kid I can remember them finding Ronald Biggs in Rio, and Shami had gone and was reunited with him and I can remember my mum and dad saying she must have known,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and they, they had a very negative opinion of her, which I told her about she laughed um, <laughs> but um, I, so I had the, that swirling in my head. And then I watched this documentary and I thought, no, she didn't. This is a really intelligent, um, articulate, um, amazingly strong woman. And, uh, and I, I, I lodged it at the back of my mind and thought, that's interesting, that's interesting, that she had to go through all that. And, and, and that's her story in The Great Train Robberies here somewhere. You know, it's, it's, it's an offshoot of of the main... reason why the Great Train Robbery was was good for Mrs. Biggs was because, you know, it's the reason why uh, Ronnie, you know, was lost to her and went, went in prison and went on the run to Australia. Mm. It was the kind of, you know, the trigger for all that. But it wasn't the actual robbery per se I was interested in. It was kind of almost, you know, uh, action off. Um, uh, but I, I... Then I heard... Um, Around the time, well, then I heard a couple of years later, maybe that there was there were plans for someone, because I think I think it was the 50th anniversary was coming up. Must have been the 50th, yeah. And there were just, you know, I think the BBC were planning a great train robbery, and I thought, oh fuck, if I don't
0: do it now, go now, yeah, someone else will get there. So <laughs> that
1: was when I, and then we went, flew to Australia and met her, and that was That, that was the start of it all.
0: Um, and you mentioned Little Boy Blue, too, mm. and the, perhaps given that isn't a robbery, it's a, another human story that um, you handled very sensitively. Maybe we could um, talk a little bit about the inspiration for that. Would you want to set it up first and explain how the idea came So Little, yeah, came little Boy
1: Blue was... Um, again, it was, a sto- it was a story that... See, I, I, early in my career, I, um, I always... I, I, I can't remember which project it was, but I was threw everything into this into a project, and it didn't happen. You know, the commissioner said, "No, nah, that's not really what we're looking for." And I was devastated, and it took me weeks to kind of, you know, th- get over this awful sense of, des- you know, desperation. Um, it did get made in the end, um, and uh, but. I, I realised then that the, 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 what I was going to do going forward from them was to have a number of projects, maybe four or five uh, on the go, so that if one hits a, a wall, yes, it's going to be painful, but at least, oh, yeah, but I still I've got this one and this one. So um, this was a project that I'd... Well, I'd met the main detective, Dave Kelly, um, several years previously, and... He was quite guarded, and it, it wasn't really... I didn't click. I didn't really sort of think, mm, I can't really see what the way into it is. Um, and he, as I say, he was quite guarded. And then... Um, and I didn't want to meet the family, um, Steve and Mel, until I was going to them and saying, we would like to make this. Because I, I thought, I can't go and see them and say, I'm really interested in telling the story of what happened. They tell me all this intimate, awful detail from, from this tragedy in their lives. And then I say, sorry, it's not happening. You know, so I, I thought, I can't do it. So I, I, it was a vicious circle, because how do you get to the point where you're going to pitch something if you don't know the... But there's you know. a story there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
0: But it's a human story. The parents had lost their child who... Um, was um, killed walking back from football training I mean just the the most awful random event which changed their lives and yet you saw a story in it.
1: (laughs) Yes and it was because it was because um, uh, a a colleague that I I worked with really a lot at at that time Quajot Dijan just wouldn't let it go and he and he he kept on saying, "We've got. You've got to look at this. You've got to look at this." Nilly and I went and met Dave Kelly again. The big thing that had happened was he'd retired. Uh, he was no longer a police, serving police officer. And then he told me, you know, everything. And and I knew from that first meeting with him because the thing that had happened was he'd um, he'd just been it was this little detail. He'd just been made <coughs> promoted from Detective Chief Inspector to de- Acting <laughs> Detective Superintendent. Um, for this case. That that was his um, rank at the time that this landed on his plate. And uh, for all kinds of emotional reasons, being a father himself, uh, bonded very closely with Mel and Steve, it became his kind of life's work. And then I thought, okay, I now can go to Mel and Steve because I know I've got this really interesting story of what happened to him. How do
0: you now build the rest of the story, knowing it's about... The detective not the boy and you're going to see the family and your key into the story is about him not them how do you handle the sensitivities of all of that
1: well that allowed me to be confident that I knew that what were the, the family um, did the family approve of of the drama being making and made in the first place mm. I, I knew so if, if they were saying yes we would you know we want to meet, we want to talk to you about what happened to us. I was confident that I could then deliver something. Going back to that thing I said, I didn't want to say, oh, thanks a lot, but we're not going to do it. So then it was about... So I I didn't know, this is my process, I didn't know when I met them what what they were going to say or how they were going to be or, you know... Obviously, I had pointers, you know, I knew that um, a little boy had gone out to football practice and never come home again, Um, you know, I've got three sons. And it's just, it's so visceral. Mm. Um, and I knew that, um, you know, I knew that uh, there had been a, a wall of silence across where they lived and it involved gangs and it involved um, some, other pe- some other witnesses who'd been brave. There was a, a, an act, a character that was called Claire Olson in the, in the piece who bravely stood up and, and, and It all boiled down to whether someone had come round her house at a certain time and there was a lot of pressure For them to say he wasn't there that day. you got the day wrong and in court She said no no he came round that day. It was a Tuesday I think he came round on the Tuesday. I saw him in my own eyes He was definitely there and it was very brave of her to say it Um, Steve and Mel so I I realized that 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 what it was also about was a study in grief Mm. and and Just little things, it was going back to the, it was a morgue scene, funnily enough, talking about that other one. She said that she'd gone there and there was Reese and uh, a morgue attendant knew he was an Everton fan and had put him in an Everton quilt and in an Everton shirt, which she was overcome with how kind that was. Um, And she stroked his head and a police officer said, if you do that again, I'll arrest you. Which I thought, wow. I mean, I knew where it was coming from, you know, the body was evidence, but... Um, and there was a moment when they were talking about and they were so frank, and th- that what, what, what was really interesting to me, and I realised was the key to unlocking the thing as a, uh, dramatically, was that they grieved differently. He kept everything in, um, and... Um, Nope, I, I don't, I'm okay, I don't, you know. And he, what, he threw himself into decorating. Decorating the house and doing things and going back to work because he just thought if I stood still, I'd fall apart. And Mel did fall apart. Mm. You know, she just struggled and struggled and struggled. And, and I thought that counterpoint was, was, was really, really interesting. There was a moment when I was around their house in Liverpool and Steve went off to make a cup of tea and she leaned and said to me, we split up, and I hadn't heard this, didn't know this, and I, I thought, wow, you know, oh, okay. She said, but don't say anything. So I, of course I didn't. And then I, I thought, wow. So obviously they're together again, because there they were in the house. But in the end, I, I just thought, hmm, you know, I, I took, summed up some courage maybe two or three meetings later and said, Mel, what you said, she was on her own, I said, what you said, I, I feel as if I, I really would like to reflect that you know, and she thought about it, and she said, well, you'll have to ask Steve, so I did. And, you know, the story was that, that this way, th- this, their different temperaments had reached a point where they just couldn't, he, he couldn't bear it anymore, and he, and he moved out and lived in a flat in a different part of town for, I think he took a year's lease, and after the year, he came back again, mm. and they were together again. And when I asked him about it, and it was embarrassing, you know, you know some, a lot of their family didn't know, obviously their other, their other son did, but it was on one level embarrassing and, and prying into their personal life, but on another level showed so vividly how they were chewed up by what had happened. And in the end, he, he said to me, it happened. And so he, he gave his blessing to him. And that I, I find a lot with, with, you know, people that I... That I talk to is that the, the truer you are to the story, the more cathartic they find the experience. Mm.
0: Well, if I can use that as a jumping off point to a very different uh, mm. piece and genre, um, a feature film that you did recently, three years ago, I think maybe, Stan and Ollie, which is another couple, another couple dealing with. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Loss or their twilight years or something. Yes, um, I mean I partly want to talk about it because it also shows a different side to your writing. It's not robbery. It's not true crime. You're dealing with icons. It shows the comedic side of you. Although I think it must be very challenging to write comedians. But was that a fun one? <laughs>
1: yeah, it, that, that I remember that, that it's a gift sometimes when you. So it was, there was a combination of it was it was. It was big part of the, the plot. If i have gone not there. It was a big part of the plot, you know, that this, this movie that they would come for and Stan was keeping it from him, that it had crashed and burned and everything. And then I just realised that, that, and I loved that I tried whenever I could to make, so that, that there, 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 were, there were three Stan and Ollie's really. There was Stan and Ollie in real life, Stan and Ollie on stage and in their movies, and then Stan and Ollie in real life but still performing, like when they check into a hotel, they kind of go into, you know, performance mode, and that was that was them. I I, lo- I thought it I, I thought it would be a key to it is to is to bleed one into the other, and so I just realized it was a gift at the moment when they were saying I knew, you, you, you knew. How did you know I knew? Or I thought you knew I knew I knew, and I, you know I realized you could get something that was approximated, approximated to their. Their movies, um, but it was um, that that the, the story of, of Stan and Ollie was. I mean, I wrote I, I'd written a draft, maybe about three or four drafts of that, well before I ever met Steve Coogan to do Philomena. Um, Steve Coogan came to me with um, Philomena. This is one of the big sort of changes in in my life, I suppose, since I. Um, since I had, had, have had some success, certainly Philomena was a big success, um, I realised after that that other people have good ideas and they can come <laughs> to me with them and say, w- would you like to write this? And um, I always thought before, no, no, it's got, I've got to think of everything I write. And, and I, so I have, it really enjoyed doing some stuff that wasn't my idea since Philomena. This one, though, predated it. And... Um, um, it got, it got another life because of the success of Philomena. And I don't know. It's very hard to a- absolutely trace exactly when a project takes off. But it, it did. It must have been to do with the success of Philomena. And um, and the, the, the really curious thing was I'd, I'd resisted the idea of Steve, Steve Guggen playing Stan because I, I thought it was too obvious. I thought. Oh, isn't it? Isn't that too obvious? I mean, how ridiculous now? Isn't that too obvious? Steve Coogan playing. Everyone would say, "Of course, he'd play it." But, and, and then, then I. And did of, you
0: have the power uh, in that sense? I don't know what uh, the was. Well, I was of one of was. the
1: group of people who had the power. Yeah, it wouldn't have been solely my decision, um, but but I'd have been a voice. And, and then I then I sort of. Thought you would be ridiculous, but then my problem was was not. No, no, I do think he'd do a great job. It was but I don't want to go to him a bit like Mel and Steve unless everybody's agreed that they definitely want him because you know, he's a close friend and I didn't want to say, How do you how do you feel about playing Stan Laurel? Yeah, I'd love to. Oh, we're gonna go for someone else. So um That all worked out.
0: But did uh, Philomena change your life? I mean, four Academy Award nominations, $100 million at the US box office. I I don't know whether you think feature films are more or less important than television, but in terms of kind of visibility, there's a different kind of international recognition that comes with it, or came with it then. did it affect who you were, other than people coming to you with projects? Or? No, I
1: think, yes, it, yeah, um, the, the, people did come to me with projects. But because I was, um, uh, although amazingly young-looking, uh, relatively mature at the point that I had a lot of success with Philomena, I knew my own mind. Mm-hmm. So I could then say uh, to myself that I realised what it was about was, was that... that, that, that the projects that I would be interested in were ones where I felt I could do them at least as well as anyone else. That was the, the bar I set for myself. And so superhero movies, things like that, there are people who can do those way better than me. Not that I... Did I get... I got offered something a little bit like that. But I just thought, no, I'm not going to... I, my mind doesn't quite work that way. It's, you know, all this stuff is all based on things that have actually happened. So my, because my mind didn't work... That way, I knew there would be pe- people who could write those movies much better than me. So there was no point in in going for that. So I, that w- that was that was knowing my own mind was very hard. Knowing the kind of thing that I did well, mm. um, you can make that decision too soon. You know, I I you know you the the writers out there, and lo- there are lots of you. You may equally um, like adapting something that's happened or. I, w- I remember to talk. I got uh, he's a really lovely guy. Um, Paul, Shameless, Paul Abbott. Abbott, Abbott. Thank you. Paul Abbott um, got a huge. I'm, I'm being discreet, but I'm sure you won't mind. He got a big advance to to adapt a book. Um, he just had a lot of success with. Um, uh, with Shameless, and then the thing that he did with David Morrissey, the political thing, which I forgot what it was called, but anyway, it was a, he was riding high, and he got a huge advance uh, to write, to adapt a book, and he, he threw himself into it and then said to me, but he said, I couldn't stand knowing the ending.
0: <laughs>
1: his process was to have a vague idea and then kind of plunge in and then write his way to a conclusion that, he, that would surprise him, I suppose. That was his process. Um, opposite of me. I very often start with the ending. I, I know what I want to write to. And he had to give the advance back, all of it. Which was very painful. Right. Um,
0: we, we've got time probably to talk about your m- most recent current um, right. show, A Confession. Um, but I'm also mindful there may be some other questions. So if we can talk about that and then throw it open to the
1: floor. There's a thing called PACE, the Police and Criminal Evidence Act, which is 1984 or s- roundabout. That's how old it, the, the um, legislation is. And it was brought in because police officers at that, in that era uh, were... Well, some of them, an element of them, were out of control. You know, they were, they were um, verbaling suspects. They were creating fictional um, witness statements. And so there was a strict set of rules brought in to govern how suspects were handled. 30-odd years later, what this piece asks is, is has there, have we now arrived at a point where there's perhaps, the, the pendulum swung too far the other way? Um, because this, it asks the sim- central question, is, there's, a, there's a girl that's gone missing, and um, the police officer, uh, played by Martin Freeman, his, his modus operandi is to say, I'm going to proceed as if she's still alive. So I'm going to try everything I can to find this girl alive. So he didn't arrest the, the suspect Im- immediately, because his, his uh, logic was that, that if we follow him, if he's got her somewhere, he'll lead us to her. And and then...
0: Uh, the Paul Abbott approach.
1: <laughs> yes, yeah, yes, he was a Paul Abbott police officer. Um, and um, uh, what happens in the end is, is they're following him and he buys a load of pills and they think he's going to commit suicide. He's technically in their care, so they have to arrest him because, you know, if he killed himself whilst in their care, then they would be liable. So they arrest him and then there's a thing called an urgent interview which you're allowed to kind of circumvent pace uh, if, uh, uh, if there's imminent, an imminent threat to the life of someone. And so he, that's what he does. He, he doesn't caution him and he says, Where is she? I want you to tell me where she is. And he said, I didn't, I didn't caution him. I didn't, because the first line of the caution is you had the right to remain silent. He said, I didn't want him to remain silent. I wanted him to tell me where she was. And the, the, that moment has life changing consequences for both of them um, from that point onwards. So I, I, you've got, you've got it, it, it's, it's unusually for me, it's six episodes. And it's that long because it's two stories, really. The first half of it is a thriller. They're, they're desperately trying to find this girl who's gone missing. And then it becomes something else. It becomes an investigation of this thing he did and the impact it has on him and on the mothers of the two victims. Um,
0: and who did you talk to?
1: Um, Initially, uh, Fulcher and about another th- three or four police officers that were involved, both the families in great detail. And, and then you know people like, like um, the boyfriend that told me about, I was hoping she, it, they'd made a mistake and just built out from there. And, and it was, uh, it, it's a painstaking process. It was legally very tricky, um, because you're saying things about people that they don't Want you to say about them
0: mm-hmm.
1: without going into too much detail, um, and um, but I, it, and, and and the the process is about having taken as everything in, having taken as much information in, and, and building and building and building that archive of that bedrock of research. It's then about f- what's your way through it, finding your way through it. And I had, you know, I knew that it was. To do with this decision he took, um, quite early the title it was only a working title, you know, a confession. It was all about a confession this guy made, and so I it, it, that that was that was that was that was my process. It was to, was to, I had a you know I had Fulcher written a book which I read obviously, and then there was another unpublished book that someone had ri- written, um, and all the all the while I'm looking for a line through it, and I. Uh, it stayed quite close to the thing that I thought it would be, which is is about, um, you know, the last, uh, f- talking about f- f- started, the opposite of Paul Abbott, is there's a line at the end. He, he, Steve Fulcher kept saying to me, what should I have done? You know, um, uh, should I have... Because if I'd have arrested him,
0: hmm.
1: taken him to a police station and given him a solicitor, the solicitor is duty-bound to say, yeah, say I nothing, meant, yeah. don't incriminate yourself. Yeah. So that's why... <laughs> Almost every suspect taken into a police station now says no comment. Um, if I'd have done that, then we would never have found either girl. You know, we certainly there's this very small chance that where he put the body of the first girl, that someone might have found that, but all DNA would have decayed, and certainly you would never have found, have found the second saying. girl. Hmm. So did he do a good did he do the right thing for the wrong reason the wrong thing for the right reason you know and I, it was morally morally complex and and you know really interesting to find the way through it and then just one final thing is that again i didn't know this as i went into it but what i found with the two mothers was really fascinating there's Elaine who is the first victim's mother and Karen the second, second victim's mother and they lived within a hundred yards of each other, although they didn't really wow. know each other. And they had this big thing, obviously this huge thing in their life, which you'd think was a common bond, and they would draw comfort from each other, but they didn't. They were close, but always apart. And it was to do with how they grieved. They grieved very differently. And the um, the, the Elaine didn't, if I, I, I hammered away and, and asked her and asked her and asked her about Karen, why didn't... Because Karen said, I would have loved to have, you know, I would have loved to have um, spent some time with her because we could have comforted each other. But Elaine said, no, no, I didn't, didn't want to do that, I didn't want to do that. And, and I would... various forms of the question, why, were met with, I didn't want to, I didn't want to. And then finally one day she said, she just said this little line. She said, um, it's too close. And I thought, oh, Okay. I, OK, I, I, I understand now, that. that opens it all out. But, sorry, to finish the, the, that thing about the last line is Fulcher had said, what was I... what, what should I have done? Mm. And he said, he said because, because at the moment, how it stands is, if, God forbid, any of our loved ones go missing, the, 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 the police are saying what they will do is arrest a suspect quickly read him his rights or her rights, take him into a police station, and that's it. No comment. So if whoever it is that's missing, if they're out there, they will inevitably die. And he said, is that what we want? And I realised that was the last line. So the last line is this radio interview he gives where he he says, is that what we want? To ask the question. But but that was difficult. Try not to put too much of myself into it, because I had an opinion, but I thought... That's not really what it's about. It's about, you've got to present it and then say, what do you think?
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, Question over here. Hi, yeah, Um, my experience of working in factual production, similar to yours, Mm -hmm. um, and I know the responsibility I feel when I've got somebody who's given me their trust and I've got access to them and telling their story, obviously I get them to be in the film and and tell it. it. Does it feel more troublesome when you're retelling it for them on their behalf? Is that that responsibility greater than you felt it before when you're retelling their words for them?
1: Um, Are you... Are you... Are you you wanting to make the move to drama? You do drama? Yes,
0: I I would like to. I've got lots of ideas. As a writer?
1: As a writer. Right. Um, No, I don't think you need to be worried about that. Mm -hmm. I think um, it's no... It's... Yes. So, all right, you interview them and they do a talking head about this thing that happened yeah. and this is, this is how I felt. It was terrible. There's another dimension that drama gives you, which is you ride it with them, don't you? You're with that character. And so when Melanie goes into the morgue and strokes the head of the, her son and someone says, you know, if you do that again, I'll arrest you. And, uh, Sinead Keenan, the actress, who brilliant actress, ter- you know, that, that moment is played out and you feel it, mm-hmm. as opposed to Melanie just saying, and oh, when I went in there, they mm-hmm. said... So um, if, if, you, if you're thorough, extremely thorough about and listen and really think about what they're trying to say to you, then I think that what you'll find is that it's a cathartic process. They're not going to say, oh, hang on, yeah. that's not... That's not... It's about, it's about really committing the time to them and really, really listening. Um, and you know, a, a big note, a big piece of advice is it, it's about ideas. Whatever anyone says, it's about ideas. Um, if you go... F- I was talking to... Uh, a, a, she was a young girl in her sort of mid-20s, and she was going for an interview, and she said, can you give me some advice, and she was talking about her CV and talking about what should I talk about, she was saying. I was going to talk about, I forget what it was that she got in her head that she was going to talk. I said, all, all you should be talking about are ideas. You know, What about this? What about this? What about this? Go in armed with, with the ideas, because that's the currency. Without the ideas, we, nothing happens. The bottom line is, if you tell it faithfully and accurately, and, and it's the truth, mm-hmm. it, can't, you can't, it can't hurt you and it can't hurt them, really. There's an, another question over there.
0: Thank you. Oh, don't know if this is... Do you, you want to just project on, then? I'll just project. Um, hi, um, I was wondering if we'd just hear a little bit more, please, about your process. You mentioned, obviously, about the difference between you and Paul Abbott and the idea that you know you're ending. Yes. But when you do sit down to start that first draft, yes. have you already outlined and sort of plotted out every scene or do you, when you go into your first draft, are you still feeling your way somewhat?
1: No. Okay, so my process is um, um, gr- gradually more sophisticated uh, point plans. So, like um, Mrs. Biggs. Okay, so I'd... It's quite, you know, it's quite daunting when you... I'm not scared of the blank page, you know, which, which a lot of people talk about. But it is daunting, because you think... Here we go. This is a big journey, um, but what I what I do is I'll I'll do a, I, you know like I can remember the big even now I could remember the beginning of Mrs Biggs. It would have been um, they met on a train. I remember that. I remember the... because the, the great train robbery, the great irony. Her and Ronnie met on a train, and so it would be they meet on a train. Um, he chats her up, she kind of knocks him back but then he kind of, you know, something about how mundane her job was and he's quite exciting. And then they meet on the train home and she accepts going for a drink and then she falls, you know, then I'd go, you know, big, she falls in love with him but she's got a very strict family and then, um, you know, the, 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 uh, the, 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 the dad finds out about it and then forces her to choose between, and I'm away. So, so I'd have that and then you know then then the next pass you know i'd I'd add bits in like i don 't know some some stuff with our sister because our sister I remember our sister talked about Ron, and then what was Ronnie doing Oh, that's right he was working as a, as, a, as a carpenter somewhere and he he had problems because he he'd been convicted of something and he was have to report you know bail or whatever and so then i'm building up and building up, and then finally, when I come to write the draft i've got a really I know where I'm going. Sometimes that point plan, I can even have, you know, I could even sort of catch fire and, and kind of get to the end. You know? Just roughly, just just and think, OK, and it goes there, and it goes there, and then it goes there, and it goes there. OK. And then I'll go back and flesh that out. And then eventually, write And then, you know, that, that's uh, uh, what I suppose I'm saying is, um, yes, I suppose I'm, 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 um, I'm taking away the tyranny of the blank screen because I kind of know what it's about. So that's my process.
0: But you're also an innate wizard with structure. I mean, he, he's quite unlike most writers, I, I have to say. Um, we only have time for one more question and I have acknowledged the gentleman on the side at the back. I, I do apologize if I took up too much of your question time, but hopefully that one will be one that we're happy to close on. This is going to be the, <laughs> the question, isn't it? No pressure. Uh, hi there. Um, when you talk to uh, writer-directors, it's really clear how they shift into production and what that role looks like. As a writer-producer, when you shift in production, what does that role look like for you, particularly with uh, collaborating with more people like your directors?
1: OK, big advantage I've got is I'm not a frustrated actor, and I'm not a frustrated director. Um, so I enjoy the process of handing over you know, the, my work, the script. Um, the, the caveat, though, is you, you need to get a good director and good actors. <laughs> so uh, as a producer, I, I th- yeah, I don't, I'm not at all scared of, of someone having their vision. I, I like that, you know, yes, you see it that way, you know, great, ha- have a vision. And, and, and an actor kind of finding something in the lines that I maybe hadn't even realised. So I, I like all that process. But it's uh, more and more you go deep right into my career. I go. It's about making the right choices of, of director, and it's it's very stressful. You know, it's it's. Um, are there any directors in tonight, today? Yeah. Well, you see, that's that's where you know there's a there's I think there's a lot there's a dearth of really good directors. There, there are there are. It's wide open for you. You might not feel like it, but I think it is, you know, it's like, it's like if, if there's a lot of directors that do a lot of things very well, but there's, there's, I don't know, there's, there's, there's room for people with very singular ideas, very, you know, really idiosyncratic ways of working and, and artists, you know, think, that's, that's, you know if I could give any inspiration that's what I'm looking for in a, in a director um, and then it, yes it's about making really good really good choices you know like um, I had the I had the privilege years ago of meeting um, Pavel mm-hmm. who you work with a uh, fantastic director who, who's gone on to he's won Oscars hasn't he Pavel he has yeah. there you go um, uh, but you, I could see then you know I, I didn't It didn't. It didn't happen. The thing that we very briefly may have done, but I could see then that that I suppose he was an artist. He is an artist. That's the thing, and I think that's what you're looking for. This confidence of I know exactly. And and it's it's don't be uh, don't be scared of being arrogant. I don't mean going and being obnoxious to people, but it is arrogant to say inherently arrogant to say, okay, I'm going to write the script. Everyone's going to do this, and he's going to say this, and she's going to say that, and I want it exactly like this. That is inherently arrogant. But embrace it, because that's, you know, and as a director, no, 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 the way, no, I don't want to do that. This is how, that's my shot. That's how I'm going to frame it. That's what I want. That's how I'm going to light it. Embrace that.
0: Yeah. Well, I think on that optimistic note, knowing there's room for you all, I'd like to thank you for coming, and most particularly Thank thank Jeff. Thanks for joining us and remember you can listen to previous BAFTA sessions and podcasts at guru.bafta.org.